0: that we might grow to be complete in Christ. Here's a moving story I received from someone through the Internet. For some reason, I'm impressed to share it again, even though I used it, I believe, sometime back in March. Listen to the message as I share this story again in your hearing. Think of people that you know as you listen who might be the same as a gentleman being helped by the medical person in this particular story. This lady, a nurse, says she was a busy morning about 8.30 when an elderly gentleman in his 80s arrived to have stitches removed from his thumb. He said he was in a hurry as he had an appointment later at 9 o'clock. She says I took his vital signs and had him take a seat, knowing it would be over an hour before someone would be able to see to his needs. And I saw him look at his watch and decided, since I was not busy with another patient, I would evaluate his wound, and so examining it as I saw that it was well healed, I talked to one of the doctors and got the needed supplies to remove the sutures and redress his wound for him so that he can go. While taking care of his wound, I asked him if he had another doctor's appointment this morning as he was in such a hurry. The gentleman said no, that he needed to go to the nursing home to eat breakfast with his wife. Well, she says I inquired as to her health. He told me that she had been there a while that she was a victim of Alzheimer's disease. As we talked, she said, I asked if his wife would be upset if he was a bit late for breakfast. He replied that she no longer knew who he was. She had not recognized him in five years. I was surprised at this and asked him, and you still go every morning, even though she doesn't know who you are? Well, now, before continuing with the story, let me ask you, my listening friends, can you think of a more wonderful picture of devotion than this story represents? What a special bond of love had developed between this couple. Do you know anyone like that? What about you? Is your love of a similar kind for your spouse? The conclusion of this story is even more surprising and moving. I'll share it with you after our first So cool.
1: I want to love you, Lord, and live my life each day. I seek your hand. Then trust you know what's best for me when I don't understand. Then follow in obedience in every circumstance. you only with all my my heart
0: well in the story the elderly patient had stated to the caregiver that his wife hadn't recognized him for 5 years Yet, to her surprise, he then informed her that he still counted it an important appointment, that he had breakfast with her every morning. So amazed at his devotion, the caregiver then asked him, And you still go every morning, even though she doesn't understand or recognize who you are? To which the elderly patient looked at her and smiled as he patted her hand and said, She doesn't know me but I still know who she is. Well, the lady said, I had to hold back the tears, as I am now. As the gentleman left, she explained, I had goosebumps on my arm, thought to myself, that's the kind of love I want in my life. True love is neither physical nor romantic. True love is an acceptance of all that is, has been, will be, and even will not be. Paul said it this way, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of them is love. And again the Lord said to his disciples, no one has a greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Remember this from the Apostle Paul also, who will separate us from the love of Christ, will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is this the kind of deep love and affection with which you have a familiarity? Share the story with your loved ones this morning and make a difference. And now with this message for today, here's our pastor,
2: Alan Lee. Good morning. It's somewhat late, I realize, but I nevertheless want to publicly congratulate Greg, our illustrious host, and his beautiful wife, Rita, their charming daughter, Nicola, and their amazingly happy son-in-law, Lester. On the birth of Greg and Rita's newest granddaughter, Karis Jane, born on Independence Day. So we congratulate them and say to them, Enjoy. Let me begin my message by asking a question. Who would you say is best qualified to describe what being a Christian really means? The answer is quite simple and logical, isn't it? The best person to describe who a Christian is and what he or she is to do is Jesus Christ himself the originator and founder of authentic Christianity. And you know what? He has done exactly that. He has personally and specifically described what it means to be Christian. We sometimes forget that Christianity is based upon the teachings of Jesus Christ, not only of the apostles per se. The apostles' teaching, referred to in Acts chapter 2, is simply the teaching that Jesus communicated to them, either directly while he was on earth or through the Holy Spirit after his ascension. Remember the words of the Great Commission, if you will. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus' teaching on the Mount, and I say teaching deliberately, because Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are more than just a 30-minute sermon squeezed into a 60-minute Sunday morning period we call a worship service. The teaching on the mount describes an extended teaching event by the master teacher Jesus Christ, and in the opening verses of Matthew 5, what we call the Beatitudes, he paints for us a minute in very much detail and bold relief the profile of a true disciple, a child of the kingdom. Now, some may challenge this, but the text is abundantly clear, I believe. The Beatitudes give us a specific profile of a true believer, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, his millennium Davidic kingdom has not yet come to earth but those who place faith in him become a child of his spiritual kingdom nonetheless. He is our Savior as well as our Lord, and Lord not only in the sense of being God, but also in the sense of being our Master. In that sense, he is by virtue of his person and position both Lord and King, whether we own him as such in our lives or not. We cannot make him lord. We cannot make him king. He is already king. He is already lord by virtue of his person and divine appointment. However, we only truly recognize or acknowledge his lordship and kingship over us when we willingly submit to his will in our daily life. Thus, in a very real sense, his kingdom for which he taught his disciples to pray to come to earth actually does come to earth whenever a believer submit to his revealed will and word, because if such is the case, then God's will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. And so, the eight faceted characters described in the Beatitudes belong to the true disciples of Jesus Christ who are blessed of God, both now and also when his kingdom comes literally to earth. Now, I want you to notice very carefully in Matthew 28, the text says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, in addition to his three and a half years of teaching them before the cross, Jesus stayed on earth in his resurrected form to give them an intensive six weeks course in kingdom truths. And later, after he had ascended and taken his seat at the right hand of his majesty God the Father, He continued to teach his apostles and prophets truths about himself, the church, and his coming again. That's what the entire book of Revelation is about Jesus revealing himself and his plan for earth to his people through the Apostle John. Now, we discussed the eight characteristics of a true believer as described in the Beatitudes in previous messages. They are the positive aspects of what it means to be a true disciple. And they are all in direct contrast to the religious teachings of Jesus' day. Jesus taught that a true disciple is meek. They taught that meekness was weakness. Jesus taught that the true disciple is poor in spirit, that is, absolutely spiritually bankrupt. They taught that they could earn their own righteousness. Jesus corrected these false concepts in the first 20 verses of Matthew 5. He presented a new standard of righteousness, a new standard for living righteously before God. He states this very clearly to his disciples in verse 20. I quote now the word of God. For I tell you, Jesus says, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus expands upon this new standard in the following verses where he gives us his perspectives on such issues as anger, adultery, divorce and remarriage, personal integrity, and love. He uses these as illustrations to highlight one major principle, and it is this. It is not enough not to commit a sinful act. The mark of a true disciple is to not even having the thought or the desire to do so. Jesus shows that man's standards are determined by outward actions, whereas God's standards are determined by inner desires. And so we propose that his perspective on these matters are to be the perspectives of his true disciples today as well. And so, during the coming weeks, we will study these topics under the theme, What Does Jesus Think? We begin today with the question, What Does Jesus Think About Anger? Now the answer may surprise you. Please follow along then as I read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Quote, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. End of quote. Strong words. But notice, Jesus does not say, it is written. Rather, he says, you have heard that it was said. You see, he is referring to the traditional teaching of the Jewish rabbis, which reflected their interpretation of the law. And not only the law of Moses, but the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, We must be careful with the text here in this passage. Jesus is not contrasting his teaching with that of the Mosaic law, but rather he is contrasting the scribes and Pharisees' distorted interpretation of the law and the true intent and meaning of the law. As a teacher come from God, he shows that he has the same authority as the giver of the Mosaic law, God himself. Now, According to traditional religious teaching, one would keep the sixth commandment so long as he did not commit the actual act of murder. However, for his disciples, Jesus went beyond the prohibition of the act of murder to the attitude of anger which prompts it. His standard was that to hold a bitter resentment toward another is equal and on the same level as being guilty of violating God's prohibition of murder. The Pharisees' religion taught no outward act of murder. However, Jesus' highest standard of righteousness for his disciples demanded no inward feeling of anger. He goes beyond the overt act to the inner motivation. To Jesus Christ, then, anger is as much a sin or crime as murder. He demands that his disciples believe and live out the same truth. The Apostle John learned this lesson well. Listen to his words in 1 John 3.15. Quote, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Notice now the word hate here refers to a deep-seated inner abiding attitude or disposition toward another person. It may be described as a seething anger. Jesus is saying that it is impossible for a true disciple of his to live with this kind of seething, negative feeling against another person. Now, I'm sure you have heard it said, or you, perhaps you have said it yourself, if looks could kill, you'd be dead by now. The thought being expressed is that the anger, which Jesus says can result in murder, is being expressed on one's expression or one's face. It can be seen. Anger can be seen. Jesus is saying that that kind of anger is just as great a sin as actually killing someone. His disciples are never to exhibit such a destructive emotion against another person. Now, the expression raka in verse 22 is of Aramaic origin and reflects on the intelligence of the one spoken about. It is an expression of contempt against another person. It means something like the word we would use today, blockhead or empty-headed. In our cultural context, it would be something like saying, you idiot, you stupid, you lame brain knucklehead or nut. But we express it with anger. That's the point. These are the kinds of expressions we use, for instance, when we are driving along and someone cuts in front of us or when someone takes our place in a long line and we become angry as a result. The words we say, the feelings we show, express our anger. Jesus is saying that that's one level of anger that must be avoided to be a true disciple. In his day, as in ours, it could land a person in the courts. However, on a somewhat higher level, or lower, according to your perspective, is when we call a person a fool. Now, this is a different term with a different connotation than stupid or idiot. Whereas these terms belittle and reflect upon a person's intelligence, the term fool reflects upon one's opinion of his moral character, who he is as a person. This is the term that David uses, for instance, in Psalm 14.1, of the kind of person who says, there is no God. The fool says there is no God. It has to do with his moral character. It may be described as the intentional assassination of one's character, motivated by anger toward that person. And so when in anger we use such a term with such a connotation towards someone else, we are as guilty as the person who commits an actual murder, Jesus' is teaching. Jesus says such an abiding attitude and behavior is of such a nature that they expose one to the punishment of hell's fire. That's not my words. They are his words, the words of the master himself. In summary then, Jesus is saying in this passage, Traditional religion teaches that murder makes one liable for man's judgment. I say that anger makes one liable for divine judgment. Religion says that abusive language invokes temporal punishment from the court. But I say that such language, motivated by anger, subjects one to eternal punishment by God. That's Jesus' standard for true disciples. That's what he thinks of anger. Now, having established the principle that anger is as much a sin as murder, the one being the source and the other the symptom, Jesus gave two very practical applications concerning the consequences of such an attitude. The first is given in verses 23 and 24. Quote, therefore, in other words, because of the truth or principle I've just stated, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Then come and complete your worship. Now, the principle is clear. Anger is sin. Sin affects one's relationship with God. Therefore, God will not accept the worship of anyone who is harboring anger toward another person in his or her heart. The application is very clear. Anyone who is aware of a grievance between himself and another person must deal with it immediately, even if it means leaving church service to do it. Worship, Jesus teaches, rather than reconciliation, is to be postponed. Notice carefully now. It is the person who is offended, not the offender who is mandated to take the initiative to effect reconciliation and that even though he may harbor no ill feelings toward his brother or sister. The teaching, I say, is clear and unambiguous. God does and will not accept the worship of individuals who are at odds with someone and who makes no attempt to reconciliation. No true disciple is, therefore, to live in an unreconciled state or conditioned with another believer without having taken the initiative to effect reconciliation. The inference being that if such initiative is sincerely taken, the one taking the initiative may resume his or her worship, regardless of the response of the other party. We are responsible for God for our response, not the response of others. A second application is made in the area of civil law. Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, and I quote, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus' teaching here is that if a legal action is made against a believer, we must make every effort to settle the matter out of court. And we are to do so as quickly as possible. Because the longer anger is allowed to go unchecked, the more intense and ugly it will become, and the more the natural and practical consequences will be. Legalism and traditional religion look to the law to settle disputes. But Jesus says that love should arbitrate our differences. When we choose to reconcile in love, we remain friends, and the matter is settled much more simply. When we rely on the law to arbitrate, we are subject to severest penalties. My friends, I have never seen a dispute between two parties settled in the law courts where they left the courts as friends and they felt as though they had come out ahead. Never. The Apostle Paul speaks plainly to this issue of Christians suing Christians in 1 Corinthians 6. He says it's wrong. That is a reflection of Jesus' teaching here. So then, What does Jesus think of anger? He thinks that it is as sinful as murder and leads not only to separation between God and man, but also between man and man, and if left unchecked, will not only leave one open to divine judgment and prevent one from worshiping God acceptably, but also leads to prolonged separation between brothers and sisters in Christ. Now remember, we are talking about here a selfish anger motivated by greed or personal concerns, not righteous anger, as we'll talk about at some other time. And so, that's what Jesus thinks of anger. Let me ask you as a professing disciple, what do you think of anger? Your answer, your attitude and actions towards your brother and sister in Christ provides the answer. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, think and act on these things.
3: twinkling of an eye it could happen in a moment he could break the eastern sky though our hearts will feel unworthy yet how happy we will be when the savior comes from heaven
0: You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas.
3: The great commander's is promised, he will surely come. And- And i